Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crip, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, December 2nd, 2013. On this day in history, in 1972, The Temptations scored their final number one hit with Papa Was a Rolling Stone. One adventure game that has had a massive amount of influence and stasis is LucasArts' The Dig. The Dig was a very important adventure game to me personally because although up to that point there had been uh, adventure game series that dealt with certain mature topics, uh, the Gabriel Knight Who am series, I speaking to? Chris? Uh, Nicholas? Uh, this is Chris. South Africa, huh? Where is South Africa again? Southernmost tip of Africa. So sort of if you know sort of where Africa is, we're kind of right at the bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm in Joburg in Gauteng. So you have the game on Kickstarter. Yes. A sci-fi, horror, isometric adventure game. Yeah, quite a strange combination. I'll, I'll definitely agree to, to that. Yeah, you guys know how to churn out the terms, man. I'm going to keep saying <laughs> that. 2D, two-dimensional. Okay, gotcha. That. Okay, stasis. Yes. Chris, welcome to the crib. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you tell me about this game, Stasis? What is it all about? I love science fiction and I love horror games. Um, and I also love adventure games, sort of in the, in the same vein as Monkey Island and The Dig and the old kind of LucasArts classics. Uh, so right. I kind of set about to make something that takes all of those, that love and passion that I have and kind of put it in a big melting pot. And the, the end result is Stasis. It's sort of my love letter to everything that I love about science fiction and, and adventure games. Well, I love science fiction also. But I'm not going to test your knowledge of science fiction, though. I'm not going to pull... You can try. No, no, no. I'm not going to pull your card, man. I'm sure you would win. I'm sure you would win. Okay, so LucasArts. I keep hearing of this LucasArts, and now it's defunct. It's Disney now, right? I still have high hopes for them actually doing something really nice with the licenses that they bought. But uh, after, I suppose, the last Star Wars prequels, we never know what they're actually going to do with it. (laughs) So you're insecure now. You're insecure. (laughs) I'm insecure about LucasArts in Disney's hands, but I am quite confident because I know that they, I mean, they're, they're a big company. And I suppose if you're going to have a large corporation take over something like Star Wars and the licenses, you know, you want it to be somebody that can have a bit of, a bit of clout and a bit of money behind them. So I'm apprehensively hopeful. Yeah, everybody's afraid of the mouse. Everybody's afraid yeah. of the mouse. I got you, man. And from the video, it's one of these dystopic future tense stories, right? It's sort of very much a future that you wouldn't necessarily want to actually be caught up in, which I think sort of makes the, the best settings for horror games. You know, you sort of you want to ask that question, would you want to actually be there? And if the answer is yes, then you're not doing a very good job with the horror games. So, you know, the answer should definitely be no. So, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a, an alternate take on kind of the worst aspects of society and, right. and finding yourself trapped in this, this labyrinth and this, labyrinth. this maze and this monolithic uh, ship. You're churning out those words, man. You're making me happy, man. I'm liking this. <laughs> I'm liking this. All right. Now, what happens in the game Stasis that renders the world like this? What, what throws the world in this sort of upheaval? In the backstory of the world, there was almost a, a second Cold War 
which took the place of sort of a genetics war, so a war of genetic modification and uh, medical research. And basically, sort of the entire thing of do the ends justify the means uh, really came into play. After a, a few years of this horrific experimentation that actually came about, society almost turned a blind eye to what was happening because they were getting the benefits of it. What happened is uh, there was a, a camp, which I've called Camp 571, right. uh, which was discovered. And essentially, it was the equivalent of what happened in World War II when Auschwitz was actually discovered. And they took the photographs and exposed it to humanity. Okay. That's really sort of where our story starts off. And the spaceship that we found ourselves on, after kind of the large public outcry of what was actually happening, all research was banned. So essentially, they had to find a way to do research out of the sort of prying eyeballs of humanity. And that's why they built the spaceship, this medical research station where our story actually takes place on. Oh, kind of like America and Guantanamo and all of that sort of thing. <laughs> similar, yes, yeah, similar, similar. So, yeah. you know, do, do you really want to know how the, um, how the sausage is made? Sort of, if you don't know what's actually happening, if you can't see it, it doesn't really affect you, does it really matter to you as, as a person, as a society? I think that's something that you have to ask yourself. Yeah, is this your first game that you're putting out? This is the first game that we're actually publicly releasing. My brother and I have been making games for the better part of two decades together. We did some uh, a game called Blast Radius, which is like a scorched earth sort of game. And um, a few years ago, we were heavily involved in the Star Control 2 community, and we did some fan games there. But this is the first game that we're seriously putting together to actually, the first game of the scale that we're actually going to be um, sort of properly releasing. But uh, Nick and I have been working together in a professional company for 11 years now. We own a company together. So we're pretty good at, at sort of working together and getting projects out the door. What's the name of your company? Burn Visual Illustration. If you go to um, okay. burnstudio.com or burn.co.za, um, it, it's an architectural is, illustration company. So we do illustrations of illustrations and animations of buildings. So you guys are architects turned gamers. Yeah, well, I mean, it's essentially, um, I wanted to make something that sort of really focused on environment and world building, which is something that we do on an almost day-to-day -day basis. So Stasis really started off as cool environments that we then kind of work the story into and the entire thing evolved that way. No, I got you. And for anyone out there, if you're interested in Stasis, our conversation, a 2D isometric sci-fi horror adventure game. I don't believe I said that well the first time. Go to <laughs> kickstarter.com, type it in, Stasis, S-T-A-S-I-S. -S, and if you can't find it there, always go to djgrandpa.com where we have links for all of the people we have on the show. Chris, thank you very much. And your brother is Nicholas, right? It's, yes, it's Nicholas. Yeah. All right, tell him I said hello too, and best of luck on Kickstarter, and we'll be there for you at the finish line. Thank you very, very much, sir. I appreciate it. Have a fantastic day. You too. Hi, I'm Brian Davis. I'm an independent filmmaker who's been working on a film for the past six months about the federal duck stamp. This isn't your typical stamp that you use for postage. It's actually a conservation stamp, and hunters are required to buy one each year. It's also used as an entrance to any national wildlife refuge. So birders, stamp collectors, and people that are just interested in conservation also buy the stamp. The really cool thing about the stamp is out of the $15 that the stamp costs, 98 cents out of every dollar is used to purchase, lease, and maintain over 6 million acres of wildlife habitat in the United States. But what makes the stamp even more interesting is how the government chooses what duck goes on the stamp each year. In fact, the government puts on 
the only federally sponsored juried art competition that is in existence. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib. This is a pretty interesting podcast, so I'm happy to be a part of it. Oh, well, thanks, dude. You know, we try the best we can sometimes, you know. We try and do what we can. You know, you being part of Kickstarter and all, and you being so special for some reason that you get granted access to secret government photo sessions that no one else has ever been granted before. Now, how does that happen? (laughs) It wasn't necessarily like a security clearance thing or something like that. Oh, okay. But I've done uh, some documentaries in the past working with like government agencies and a couple of years ago, I did a film about the coroner's office in Los Angeles, and that took a really long time to get access to. I'd hope. You know, getting access to a government agency or any agency is just sort of being kind of persistent and patient and, you know, kind of prove to them that you're not going to make them look bad in any way. The name is worth money in itself, so... I love marketing, man, and that's totally cool, the million-dollar duck. I was totally sold. I was like, I got to be part of that. I was like, I know he's going to ignore me, but I got to be part of it. What I do for all, like, my movie titles is, um, I'm actually from Virginia as well. Right. And um, my parents live in Virginia, and, I, you know, I'm a pretty artsy guy when it comes to films and stuff, actually. And so, right. like, you know, I like all these things that don't really fly with them. And they're like, they don't understand. And then, but all my titles, I run by them. And I'm like, well, what do you think about this? And I gave them, you know, I said the million dollar duck. He's like, now that sounds interesting. That's going to be a movie. That's <laughs> <was> like, all <laughs> right. <laughs> that would make me watch it. So, so, so his then, family you know, approved? My dad liked it. Oh, yeah. If the oh. family approves it, then dad it's just there. <laughs> well, you can tell him DJ Grandpa approved. The duck stamp office is like super small. Right. Um, it's only like a couple of people. And there's a chief that kind of runs it for a couple of years or whatever. The guy's name, who we're hoping to interview a little later on in the year, his name's Bob Lucino, he used to run it, and he was trying to promote it really hard. And he came up with that slogan. He said, if you can paint a duck, you can win a million dollars. And that's sort of how it got named the Million Dollar Duck. Because these guys make a lot of money if they win. They do? Oh, yeah. That's where it comes from. I mean, it's not as big as it was in the 80s. Like, right. during the Reagan era, when wildlife art was really, really big, some people have made up to like three to four million after they win. Because basically what happens is like the government just kind of gives you a sheet of stamps and like a pat on the back. Right. You can basically sell your prints of that image, the image that's going to be used on the stamp. And all these people start buying it. And you do these little like remarks, which these things sell for like, you know, a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, these limited edition runs. Right. And people just run with it. And it's like for a year, you have really, really high sales of that image. It's gotten less now. I think they sort of like kind of jokingly say it's like the 250 to half million dollar duck now. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of these guys live in fairly rural areas where right. that amount of money can really, really help them. So getting that chunk of money is a pretty life-changing event for them. That's still capitalism, man. Capitalism. American stuff. <laughs> so style. all that stuff about uh, how much money they make, and I'm um, trying to get clearance to shoot the actual printing of the stamp, which right now doesn't look too good because it's also where they print all of the money. Yeah. So you actually have to get like have a fingerprint ID, like eye scan type thing to get in there. And, there, and when I brought up the idea of me going in there with the camera, they weren't too happy about it. I could imagine that. I can imagine that. 
And this is a very good doc. I mean, the part that you, you, you know, the preview, the sneak preview that you let us see and stuff, it's way cool. Okay. It made me laugh at the end. I believe the guy, Robert Bill, I believe that's his name. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, he was talking about, you know, nobody's going to buy a salamander or a worm or a snail or a raccoon, but they'll buy a duck. And, and I, I was just like, man, this guy is hardcore, man, you know. For the community that knows about it and is involved with it, they're very, very dedicated to it, almost to an obsessive degree. They're crazy, um, man. And when you start, yeah, when you start really <laughs> getting into it, and I, I'm yeah. part of it. I'm getting to be part of it. There's a, a book written about it, which the film is based on, and like he sort of right. compares it to like once you really start looking into it, it's like going into the rabbit hole. And it's like once you start peeling back all the layers, it just gets more interesting and more interesting. You start researching it more and finding out all about all the artists and all the artwork, and it, you really go head first into this rabbit hole, and you can't come out. And that's sort of why you know I started doing the film because I just got so interested in it, and I couldn't believe that it, the sort of general population outside the people I mentioned before didn't really know about it. And everybody right. I mentioned it to and finds out about, they're just they like can't believe that it exists and they just want to hear about it. So I thought it'd be a good topic for a film. For anyone out there, check out the Million Dollar Duck, the Duck Stamp documentary, and it's super cool. Well, what I've seen of it on Kickstarter, and you can help it come to fruition and be able to see the whole feature length. So go to kickstarter.com, and if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com, where we'll have links for Brian and the Million Dollar Duck. Dude, thanks for coming on the show, and this is an incredible story, an incredible film, and... um. Yeah, man, I'd love to see a cut once it's actually done or something. So, you know, get back with me. <laughs> I right, will do. Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can have it done by next year's uh, Duck Stamp competition, which is actually going to be in D.C. Oh, so, cool, um, man. We'll meet up. We'll meet up. All right. We'll do the old Soviet-style meetup. You know, you set down a briefcase or something, and then I'll set down an exact facsimile briefcase of yours and then pick up the other one. Okay, we'll do. <laughs> Set it up. <laughs> Jan, I want to welcome you to DJ Grandpa's Crib, man. Thanks a lot, and thanks for having me. You guys got that game out there called Dex Cyberpunk Shoot 'em Up, Beat 'em Up, Alternative, Futuristic. Actually, it looks pretty cool, actually. I kind of like it there. Thanks for inviting me. And what do you have to tell me about the game, man? You, you gotta, I, I need more than the bio. What, what is this game is about? It was originally inspired by Neuromancer. If you know William Gibson and just his cyberpunk novels. Right. And all of this was mixed with my idea, which I had several years ago, about game which takes place in two zones or uh, two planes of reality. Right. Originally, this idea was for a fantasy game. It was like you're playing as a shaman and you are visiting the astral realm and the physical realm. Then we decided like fantasy and stuff like that, it would be better to make a cyberpunk thing. And we decided to make this whole new reality in the cyberspace. So with Dex, it's a Metroidvania, Metroidvania style of game, like platformer with RPG elements right. and dialogues and stuff like that. But the whole game takes place in two realities. You can lead dialogues with physical entities and NPCs, and you can visit AIs, artificial intelligences, 
in the cyberspace. You can visit enigmatic locations and and really psychedelic stuff in the cyber realm. That's starting to sound like Dex is on drugs or something. <laughs> well, actually, the name Dex, it came from Neuromancer as well. Right. Because Gibson mentions there some some uh, substance, and yeah, so that's how the how the ah, name came. It always goes back to some substance with you guys. I understand. I understand. <laughs> Is Dex like a spy or something? Because he seems to have all these clandestine type characters after him. Actually, she she's not. She's it's just a she, ordinary. right? It's a she. Yeah, I yeah, thought it's it was. She. It's I, her. Right, I thought it was a she, but then I got confused with the name Dex. But when I looked on the cover, it looked like a girl, and then. When I got into the video, I just got confused. So it is a girl. Cool. Yeah, okay. it is a girl. And, well, well, she's quite ordinary girl working for a corporation. Right. But she discovers her innate ability to move freely through the cyberspace without the need for an implant or a check of some kind. Right. And for this reason, she's approached by a legendary hacker called Raycast. Right. And together, they depart on a mission to, well... I wouldn't like to spoil much, but... Yeah, don't spoil it. The whole high-level story is about an AI right. called Kether, and this AI is trying to reach the singularity through like the evolutionary point when it is not anymore just one AI in the cyberspace, but right. it also merges with humans and becomes kind of God for humanity. So if I get this right, you're talking about some sort of artificial intelligence that's going to be like the missing link between the evolution of human beings and, and computers. Is that is that right? Actually, yes. It is, it is like a connection point. You guys are out of Prague, Czech Republic, right? Yes. You know, in American movies and stuff, places in Prague is always where this sort of sci-fi computer type <laughs> stuff keeps happening, man. So I guess maybe you have your thumb on the pulse or something, or you're just growing up with all this. So I understand that, man. This is a cool looking game, man. I, I like that. I like that. You mentioned earlier, maybe before we were rolling, that you've been, you know, Kickstarter started and you've been fielding all these calls, these messages, all this stuff. How are they treating you? Good news, bad news, what? Well, since we launched, we got... Many offers from backers, like tips on the websites where to send the game, or journalists asking for interview or asking for some materials. Right. So it's actually very open and very supportive. It's a lot different from from like general game websites when there are a lot of haters. There are a lot of nice people, but a lot of <laughs> oh, haters yeah, like, and everything. Yeah, trolls. Yeah, but. At Kickstarter, it's a very nice and supportive community. Yeah, man, there's some really nice people out there on Kickstarter, man. I don't know what's wrong with those people, man. Because on other sites, man, there are a lot of there are a lot of non-believers out there, and they can be pretty vicious. Yeah. But on Kickstarter, I just don't know what's wrong with those cats, man. They they act like it, it it's a kind of gentler nation or something. It's a kind of new religion, I would say, like <laughs> religion supporting uh, entrepreneurs and, and interesting projects. No, nah, no, nah, and, and it says your game due uh, June 2014. Yep. That's pretty fast, man, because sometimes people take much longer. So that means you've been working on this game. How long that you can say June 2014? Yeah, it's a year, actually. The idea came earlier, but like putting together of the whole team, it happened on 1st November. Uh, right. 2012 so right. it's actually a year of work right now 
And yeah, that's that's it. You seem like the nicest guy, man. I I can see why people are being nice to you, man. You <laughs> must give it. You must nice give it well. back or something. Nah, I'm mean, man. I want to be mean, but but I understand, <laughs> man. I understand, man. I understand. Now, if I've cheated you in any sort of way, like I haven't given you a chance to get your point across, or I've interrupted you so many times you just couldn't get the message out, is there anything you'd want to say? I wouldn't say anything in particular. Just like I'm happy that your podcast exists. It's a great idea, and I think there should be more services and websites and podcasts covering and concentrating on Kickstarter projects because it's a great service to the community and to the developers because, you know, the people who follow you on Facebook are probably the people who are hardcore fans of Kickstarter. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm happy to be there. For anyone out there, if you're looking for a game, a nice shoot-em-up flick, a nice popcorn video game, man, where they with a virgin cyberspace and reality. You know, it's a girl, a heroine as the lead, so that's always kind of cool, always kind of different. And maybe it's not different, so if I say it's different, then maybe someone will say women lead all the time and they can kick butt too. But anyway, it's cool. I like it. It's called Dex. Go to kickstarter.com, check it out. And if you can't find it there, always go to djgrandpa.com where we will have links for y'all. And this whole team, man. It, you guys are called Dreadlocks, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a cool name, man. That's a cool name. I had Dreadlocks at some point in time, but oh, yeah. not right now. But anyway, that's cool, man. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, and have a nice time. The thing is, I hate this place. The thing is, I really can't stay longer. Maybe just one more song And you can hold me close And we can dance real slow Cause the band is going strong And you can sneak a kiss Right here on my lips Even though we don't belong Hi, my name is Natalie York I'm so excited to tell you about my brand new album It's called Promises I promise you that you'll love it How are you doing, Natalie? Good hear you're a soul singer, hear you like music, love music. Oh yeah. Want to do it all the time type of music. Oh yeah. You have a new album coming out too that you're trying to, well that you're funding on Kickstarter. That's right. Why don't you tell me about it? I think it sounds really, really good. We recorded it this year, went up to the Catskills in upstate New York and did a lot of the tracking of the live band really, really cool experience to go up and record and then came back and added horns and pedal steel guitar and more vocals. And I just think it just sounds really, really good. It's got a little bit of soul, you know, there's those R&B tracks with the horns on them. And then there's a few tunes that are more country oriented with the, you know, they have the pedal steel and... write your own songs? I do. Well, what type of singer are you? You know, like sometimes you have someone who's really into love songs or you have someone who's 
you know, they do like maybe songs that are just totally pro-girl, you know, girl power and stuff. But what would typify you? They're talking about love and sometimes when love doesn't work out the way you want it to. But there's a sense of humor involved, you know, all the time that I think I think kind of comes through as well. Well, if like I were doing a horrible job and not really figuring out good questions or appropriate questions to ask you, what would you tell me I'm missing? I've been getting really into Brandy Carlisle and Grace Potter and Ray LaMontagne. And I think that I think that all, all of these current influences too come through a lot, as well as, you know, just traditions of, you know, old soul music and, and old country music that, you know, are really kind of ingrained. Like how much do, would you say of your sound studio magic and how much can you pull off live? Like, are you just as good live as you would be in the studio or? It's funny, I just taught a full day of creative writing workshops to a bunch of middle school classes. I had performed a couple songs for them and they had just been listening to a song off of my first record and they had, you know, they had gone through with their teacher and talked about what they thought the lyrics meant. And I played you know, one of the songs that they had listened to and kind of studied and they went around the room and kind of talked about what was different about the live performance and the studio performance and they all were just like pretty excited by hearing me live and you know it was very raw and acoustic and just me playing guitar and singing but I think they were surprised by how much it could fill the room and you know the teacher had asked the students before I even started playing like what they thought the differences might be and one boy raised his hand and said, well, in the studio, you can use auto-tune and you can enhance the voice. And I think it sounded like he thought that we have to cut her some slack when she performs live because it's never as good. But I think that they were all surprised that a singer can have a powerful impact in a live environment as well. You pull me in with promises, promises, promises. You pull me in with promises. You pull me in with promises of everything. Are you a teacher? I would like to be. I haven't done a ton of teaching, but I think especially in terms of writing and um, songwriting, I think that I would like to do more teaching. And for anyone out there, if you've enjoyed the music in the background by Natalie York, go to kickstarter.com and check her page out, check her video out. She has a very uh, enthusiastic video, I'd say, on Kickstarter. <laughs> And see if you'd like to donate to her campaign to fund, to release, in a big way, her yeah. new album. And if you can't find her there, if you get lost for any reason, if you get confused, always go to djgrandpa.com where we post links for all the groups and acts and writers and authors who are on the show. Natalie, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your music. Well, thank you so much. Greetings, concerned citizen. I'm a scientist. If you're watching this film, it's likely that society as you know it has ceased to exist. Yes, I'm talking about the silent killer known as BSE-XP. You probably recognize bovine spongiform encephalopathy as mad cow disease. What you don't know is that a rare strain of the pathogen has recently infected the food industry's genetically modified super cows. The end result? Lethal. The cows have mutated into carnivorous monsters. Shoot cows. Or worse. Oh. 
Okay, that is a controversial name, I will say off the bat. I will say that's controversial, yes. I don't see how you guys could do such a thing. But I did watch the play video, and people said the same thing. How could you do such a thing? But then they played it, and they were like, it's totally a cool game. And I'm sorry, there is a violent streak in me somehow. And, and it just seemed to be so much fun fun when I watched the video. So I want to welcome you guys to the show, Shoot Cows on Kickstarter funding now. Tell us what the game is about. Well, this has been here, and uh, I always describe the game as The Walking Dead meets Animal Farm. The premise of the game is that there's a rare strain of uh, mad cow disease that has infected the genetically modified super cows that are like the big beef cattle that... Uh, are currently being produced across the United States. And right. the disease has caused the cows to react in different ways. Some of them sort of zombify. Some of them just mutate into giant, you know, muscle-bound monsters with claws and so forth. And, and really it's hard to tell until you go exploring and, uh, and you discover these cows. And sometimes you have to fight to save your life. So the object of the card game is to, you know, obviously shoot cows. That's the name of the game. And by doing that, you acquire what are called survival points that uh, increase your survivor's likelihood of living through to the end of the game. And the goal is just to rescue three of your survivors. Whenever the undead or zombie or something like that is involved, sooner or later you have to go for self. So I believe in the game I saw how you backstab each other or you (laughs) become kind of ruthless or something just for survival's sake. This is John here, and uh, that's part of the, you know, appeal to the game we're both big tabletop gamers and fans of like right. the game uh, Munchkin and Catan, and it's all about one-upping. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways within the game that you can throw cows at the other players to kind of backstab them or hurt them or make it so they don't you know, rescue their survivors. That's cruel. But it's interesting, too, is because you have to be careful not to do it too much because there's an aspect called the herd. Right. And so for every cow you throw down to backstab other people, <laughs> those cows stay in the herd and they make it harder for even yourself to rescue. So it, there's a balance game that goes along with the whole thing. This sounds like a Bill Murray movie almost. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking The one with the golfer and the lightning struck his pole and he was after that gopher trying to kill it. Oh, the whole Caddyshack? Yeah, this reminds me of Caddyshack somehow. Man. I love that movie. It does have a, a definite comedy streak to it. I mean, we've, John and I have, uh, you know, done lots of different things with comedy throughout the course of our lives. And so that's a, a pretty big part of the game is just some of the puns that are incorporated into the cards. Punny, punny. I gotcha. Uh, but also corny. I mean, we aren't trying to, uh, you know, win any Pulitzers here for writing or anything. <laughs> no, I gotcha. Now, this game feels like a party game. So, but what are the age ranges for this game? We are marketing it to ages 12 and up. I mean, there is a little bit of material that may not be suitable for little kids, but, uh, you know, you have that when you're dealing with guns and and mutant cows and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. That video was hilarious, man. And and, and you you had to give the little girl a bazooka. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was my daughter, by the way, my youngest daughter. And she's Um, safe and all. She's safe. I rescued her early. <laughs> yeah, she's recovering nicely, so. Oh, that's cool, man, because she did seem to take a blow when she um, ignited that bazooka. So, <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say to your backers that you have? Because you guys seem to be doing pretty well, but 
you still need more help, but you seem to be doing okay. To our backers out there, everybody who supported the Kickstarter, I want to personally say thank you. I would just like to say that without the backers on Kickstarter, there really is no shoot cows. I mean, right now it's a game that a, quite a few people here in Pittsburgh have played and enjoyed, but without the funding that we're raising on Kickstarter and all the people who have seen the game and that believe in it sort of sight unseen, um, without those people, it wouldn't be possible. So thank you, and we hope you spread the word to as many people as possible. For anyone out there who'd like to try what I call a satirical game of us versus the cows, us versus them, go to kickstarter.com and check out the very punny shoot cows. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com. We'll, we will provide links for Ben and Jonathan. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys fund, and maybe one day I'd like to check out a version of the game. So thank you very much for your time, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the crib. Appreciate the help. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Alessio Cavatora. And I'm Brown Fulton. And welcome to the Tower of Locker. How's it going, Alessio? I'm fine, how are you? So what makes your game special on Kickstarter? The Tarot of Loka. We decided basically to go back to what Tarot used to be, a game. Right. It's basically trying to do two things. It's trying to be as cool as the original ancient Tarot with all the mystic, strange signs on it, which is very you know, fascinating stuff. But at the same time, it's trying to be a very simple card game that anybody can play. You know, kids with grandmas at Christmas, whatever. It's trying to be very simple to play, but with very nice-looking cards so that actually people that like this kind of stuff can also collect it, you know, because of the art. Now, who invented tarot? <sighs> well, you cannot really say who invented it because obviously it's lost in history, but... Which culture, then? It's been imported into Europe by the Arab merchants, the, the Moors, that were right. coming to trade with the Southern European countries in the Middle Ages. You know, we're trading spices for metal, maybe, right. you know, and this kind of stuff. And, you know, they were playing their cards around the fire and night as they were doing their deal, maybe after doing their deals, when the deal was done and people were, you know, celebrating and relaxing and okay. around the campfire, they would play their cards and... Uh, or play chess, indeed, all this kind of stuff. Like chess, it was imported into Europe from, from the Middle East, and probably traditionally, if you trace it back, actually all this kind of stuff comes from India, really, <laughs> from ancient India. Right. But we don't know. So anyway, those cards were taken into Europe, which, again, were adopted into European culture and Christianized from those ancient medieval games than the modern card games, you know, like poker and all that stuff came from those and tarot was one of the original ones and it was a game people right. used to play it and then uh, something happened in the i think just a century ago 1800 something like that the occult uh, the mystics the, the people you know the, the spiritualists believe in the afterlife and stuff started to give it a a different value to these cards and they started to put you know, they started to read foretelling right. future and do some what they call reading the tarot. So from a game, it turned into a instrument of, you know, it'd be like a horoscope, really. So, you know, if you believe in this kind of stuff, in my case, I don't. So for tarot, you said it's very beautiful artwork, but you're mainly the conceptualist, the, the write the rules and stuff like that. 
That's right. Yeah. The artist is a British artist that worked a lot both in England and in the US mm-hmm. uh, for many companies that do games like Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons right. or Warhammer as well. So Okay, what's his name? Ralph Horsley. Is he the guy that's in your video? That's right. No, Tarot. It's a game of elements though, right? I mean, water, yes, nature. Uh, you know, I was designing this card game for four people, like Bridge, like Whist, you know, is the right. kind of game similar to those. It's a four-player game, you know, the, normally there are four suits in a, in a deck of cards. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went, oh, wow, four players, four suits, four elements. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so you know, I put this all together and, uh, again, all the, all the warriors, the kings, the queens, and all the things you have in the elemental chess, I basically took and put into the elemental suit of cards in the in this tarot. And then in tarot, there is a fifth element. In tarot, there is what they call the major arcana, which are... Uh, this... Oh, yeah, I didn't know what that was. I saw that. You know, in a normal deck of cards, there's like 13 cards of spades, 13 cards of hearts, 13 right. cards of diamonds and clubs for each uh, suit. In tarot, there's 14 cards per suit, because there's also the knight, as well as the queen and the king and, and the jack. There's the knight. And on top of that, there's 22 extra cards. And this suit, this fifth suit, this group of cards is called uh, the Major Arcana uh, because they are major because they are uh, the dominant, strongest cards. They are the, right. the most powerful cards. And if you believe in, uh, obviously, in the mystical side of things, those are the, the ones with the most powers. <laughs> they are the ones that are most so characterful. And they're numbered 0 to 21. Card number zero is called the Fool, which is kind of a jester, a trickster, a right. very mysterious figure. Number one is the Magician. There's very interesting characters. There's Death, number 13, I believe. There's the Hangman. You know, there's some of the major arcana have occasionally some Christian. The one is the Pope. The other one is the Popes, believe it or not. One card is a female pope, which doesn't make any sense. There's never been a <laughs> You said you went back to more like the roots, I got you. Indeed, and uh, we made it fantasy. This is a funky game for the family from people like me, which, you know, I'm a geek. I'm a game designer. Right. The artist himself, he loves fantasy stuff, like Lord of the Rings, you know, like. Uh, so he's not the pope, is the high priest, whatever else, you know. It, right. We remove Christian. For example, one of the cards, card 15 is traditionally the devil. We went, no, we call it the fiend, like one of these monsters, creatures, etc. We made it all kind of softer and nicer because we really don't want to go there. We don't want you know, to touch into people's religion and people's sensitivities. This it has to be a game, a fun game. For anyone out there, I think he's proven his case. I think he's shown that he's gone back to the basics, didn't Christianize it, went back maybe as far as India. And if you're interested in this game, The Tarot of Loka. Go to kickstarter.com and check it out. T-A-R-O-T of Loka, L-O-K-A. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com where we'll always have links for Alessandro. And it's a pretty cool game. Thank you very much for coming on the show, man. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the world of Bedlam. You poor fool. All your weapons seem completely useless. Stay back! What madness lies ahead. 
Aussies. I think that's how you pronounce it. Aussies. That's how Americans <laughs> always pronounce well, it. Okay, well, how do... Aussies. Aussies. Yeah, okay, Aussies. More of a Z. Okay, I got to yeah. watch um, Skippy or something. My children watch it. I got to watch that show or something. That's like 50 years old now. Do you know the, uh, the catch... Cry, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. That's what we sing at uh, sports events and stuff. Oh, no. I haven't traveled enough yet, man. As soon as I, as soon as I get around to it. I'm, the Olympics and things, you might have seen it. You know, since I live in the media, you know, work for the media, I kind of have a media blackout a lot of times. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, chefs that don't cook for themselves at home, huh? Greetings, meat-based life form. Game Bedlam, Sydney, Australia. It looks crazy. Well, it is crazy. Too much uh, serious fantasy in the games thing. We thought we'd diversify a bit and have a bit of a funny take on the whole thing. Also drive people insane while they were playing it. Okay, explain the game to us because I'm not understanding it. All I'm seeing is crazy people, crazy cards, screaming and yelling. <laughs> You know, we're under attack, you know, save me, save me. But that doesn't really explain the game to me. But you have a great video there. So what is the game? Sam, would you like to go ahead? Well, I think that the game is... I say Sam here. Oh, Sam here. (laughs) I believe the game, it's like a screw your opponents over style game where everyone is trying to stay brave and sane in a scary, crazy world. A bit like the real world in that regard. But uh, you have a certain amount of heart and mind points. And if you lose them all, then you've gone crazy or been scared to death. And if you get enough, then you are brave and sane in the face of overwhelming odds. And, of course, all your opponents are in the dark trying to make sure that you go nuts before uh, you win. (laughs) Dave here, I'd like to uh, add my own piece to that. Yes, Dave always likes to add his own piece. A big element of the game is you can imagine yourself as somebody who's walking around in this game world with a certain amount of stuff. And by stuff, we mean you can have three things at all times out in front of you or on the table that the other players can see. You can have a weapon, you can have a buddy that's following you around, and you can have a thing, which is just a thing. And with that stuff, that's what you use to make your opponents more scared or make yourself feel braver or make your opponents go crazy or make yourself feel more sane against these horrible and maddening things that you come across in this world. Now, Bedlam is a real game, right? It's a real game. It's a real game. We've been working on it for the last four years. Four years. Mm. Okay, so that makes it a real game. And uh, it's not about like a nut hatch or something like that, right? It's not really based anywhere in particular, but it is... Kind of like everywhere and everything. So you'll get goblins, but you'll also have lawyers. And so it's just a real mix and match across sort of culture kind of thing. But you could say that the real world is an asylum in a way. And uh, we're all trying to stay brave and sane in the real world. And uh, Bedlam is a bit like a caricature of that. Wow, that was pretty good. Now, what's that Dave was saying? That was Sam. Okay. <laughs> okay, a thoroughly uncooperative card game. You guys are pretty good with the marketing, man, and those are great graphics, I must say. We're definitely yeah. making it up as we go along here. Oh, we've had a long time <laughs> to think about it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm trying to accuse you guys of making it up as you go along. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll accept your accusation and Dave won't. See, that, that's the nature of our relationship, always arguing. <laughs>
That's right. We <laughs> oh, Bedlam. Okay, I got you. Sydney, Australia. No one probably gets along in Sydney, you know. It's okay. <laughs> it's too beautiful here. It's, it's too perfect. You've, you've got to hate the other people. It's the only thing that you can hate about the place. <laughs> so this is a card game. Any dice, uh, chips? Dave here. At the base level, you can buy just the cards and you can provide all of your own extra stuff that you need to play the game because you can just use coins or things like just anything really, just as long as you've got a few of them, grains of rice or something. (laughs) If you pay a bit more on the pledge level, then you get all of the nice bits. And uh, I've got a laser cutting machine and I laser cut and hand make all of the bits on a really expensive pledge. He's like a mad professor. Yeah, I really like making very nice things. What was the rest of the question? Would be the slider, though, Dave, surely. Oh, the slider. Yeah, the slider's an integral part. On the card-only version, it comes with, like, a, a print-and-play slider. What's the slider do? I always think of the slider as being, like, a reflection of yourself, kind of like your ego. Like how it, you it feel. Just, yeah, it just tells you how you're feeling at the time. It, it tells you if you're feeling a little bit scared or if you're full of gusto or if you're uh, feeling a bit crazy or you feel very... Uh, Sane indeed. Is it like a spinning wheel? It's like two rulers that slide against each other and okay. with a little window that goes across the top. Oh, okay. And so it basically just shows two numbers in relation to the, each other. It's a very unique part of the game. Uniqueness. And, uniqueness. And, and the background of that is when you're in certain situations, right, you have to be crazy to feel brave or rather you have to be insane not to be scared in certain situations. <laughs> Or if you are very brave, then it means that you're actually a bit crazy. (laughs) And that's how the slider works. If one stat goes up, the other one generally goes down. Oh, yin and yang. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Are either of you psychiatrists or something like that? I think we're both a bit psychotic. (laughs) I don't know if that counts for anything. (laughs) I've been to a psychiatrist. They said they didn't want to see me anymore. I was was too nuts and get lost. Okay, all right. I'm not asking about your behavioral meds regimen or anything like that. I just wanted to know were you guys professionals in any sort of way? Yeah. <laughs> we're professionals at life. Yeah. I'd say we're staunchly unprofessional in attitudes towards everything. Yeah. I guess that's okay, man. It takes all types to make it in this world, man. I mean, you need the types who make crazy card games. <laughs> is this your first game, or have you guys delved into this sort of arena before? This is our first attempt to make a game. We've certainly been gamers for a long time, but no, nah, I can't profess to have ever made a game before. Your video, man, is incredible. I don't know. I don't understand what it means, but visually, it's incredible. <laughs> the cards, you know, wavering sort of kind of, and the bright colors. I'd just like to do a bit of a shout out to our artist. We have a really amazing artist. Yes, you game. do. Yeah, his name's Mike Foxell. He does work for the BBC in, in England and he's in a band that tours around playing punk rock music. He lives wow. in a little rural town in country New South Wales, which is one of our states. It's in, like the equivalent. Surrounded of by arid, flat land. He's like Australia's version of the Midwest. Oh, um, and okay. so he's just in a little shed out there just drawing these crazy pictures. Right. He's just an amazing artist. You can check out more of his work at uh, xraystudios.com. And for anyone out there, I'm telling you, check out this game. It seems insane. I'm not saying I totally understand it, but it looks really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you have the game in front of you and the rules, you're still not supposed to totally get it. Right. No, no, that's backwards. If you have the rules and everything in front of you, you're supposed to totally get it. (laughs) I know. 
That's Bedlam, a thoroughly uncooperative card game. They're from Sydney, Australia. I don't know what their problem is. They're the first people <laughs> coming off from Australia on Kickstarter, so I don't know why they can't behave. Sam and Dave, dude, <laughs> great job, man, great job. And I hope by the time, well, this, this game's gonna get funded. You guys fun, you treat your back as well with respect and you come back with your second game, maybe you guys will have calmed down a little bit and stuff like that. You know. I hope not. I hope not, Grandpa. Thank you, DJ, Grandpa. All right, dude. I'll see you later, man. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I can't end the show without giving a shout-out to my man, the excellent Brian John Mitchell and his project Christmas Buttons and Magnets. I can personally attest to the quality, workmanship, and beauty of Brian's magnets. These would make the perfect hostess gift for those holiday get-togethers. Tis the season for Christmas and buttons and magnets exclusively on Kickstarter. And now some exciting news for DJ Grandpa's crib. We'll hit the play button on our very own Kickstarter soon. DJ Grandpa's crib season two. Stay tuned. And last but not least, I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Zach Samal, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus.